Let's pray. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Spirit of God, we pray this morning that you would speak. Speak through your word. Make the gospel known to us. Soften our hearts and open our ears that we might hear it by grace, believe it by grace, and apply it by grace. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so do you guys remember when we didn't have streaming services and TV watching was always limited to what was on during certain times of day, certain days of the week? My kids don't understand this, right? There's actually this thing called the TV guide. And some of you are like, oh, I know what that is. It's the thing that shows up on TV that you kind of scroll through. No, 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 no. It's a book. It's a book that they deliver to your house like every month or two. And that book is like an actual book. It came to your house. And you'd page through it and you'd make plans like, oh, that's on. This, this thing's going to be on. It's only on once. Once it's gone, that's it, people. This is the life we lived, okay? Um, but it wasn't bad, right? Because it forced us to sit down and watch shows one week at a time, one episode at a time. We had to wait. Unlike this uh, rampant... A desire for constant fulfillment, immediate immediate gratification. But uh, it also forced me to watch specific shows that my family enjoyed like watching together. Because here's the deal. You had one TV. We all have our own little devices, right? So we all watched the same thing. Like if, if there was nothing on, fine, turn it off, you go outside. But, but we all huddled around the TV, we watched the same thing. And one thing that we liked to watch was occasionally the, the Andy Griffith show on Nick at Night. And there's this particular episode, gets referenced a lot, you might have read this quote before, but it's pretty popularly referenced. I remember watching it as a kid, and, and what was happening is, there's this man, he's kind of a vagrant, a drifter, a wanderer. Okay, he's not tied down to anything, he doesn't really care about the rules of law, he doesn't really care about anything other than what he wants. The mantra that he lives by is, nobody decides for me, I do what I want. I do what I want. Right? And so he moves into Mayberry. That's where Andy lives. Okay. He befriends Opie, Andy's son. So Andy's the town sheriff. I'm not sure how much I have to describe Andy Griffith. Okay. Um, anyway, so Opie, Andy's son, starts hanging around with this vagrant. Not a good idea, usually, uh, who's wandered into town. And it's spending time with him. And this guy tells Opie that he shouldn't be constrained by anyone else's authority. Uh, in life, that he should just do what he wants. Decide for yourself. Decide for yourself. Do what you want to keep telling him. Don't, don't let others ever decide for you. Go the direction of your desires. Your father isn't being loving, he told Opie. If, if he tells you to do something that's the opposite of what you want, how could that possibly be loving? So Opie takes this advice to heart, and he decides to do as he pleases. This causes all kinds of hilarious problems. No, but he gets home and Aunt B tells him, clean your room. He's like, I don't want to clean my room. Right? Uh, I want to go fishing. So he goes fishing instead. And his dad, Andy, tells him, it's time to do your chores. He's like, I don't want to do my chores. I want to go buy some candy in town. He's like, he is uh, kind of a rebellious Opie. Right? So um, Andy's concerned. As a good dad and sheriff, he goes down to talk to this vagrant and this is how the conversation goes. So he comes to him, he says, something's wrong with Opie. He says, uh, the man says, what's wrong with Opie? He says, well, and he says, there seems to be something wrong with his thinking. He's, 
seems to have gotten pretty twisted on things lately, like being able to tell the difference between right and wrong. Not that that's an easy thing. A lot of grown-ups still, still struggle with the same problem. But it's especially difficult for a youngster because things rub off on him so easy. I see, the man said. You're suggesting I'm not fit company for Opie. That would seem to be the case, Andy said. Well, Sheriff, the man replied, I, maybe I, I do look at things different from other people. Is that really wrong? I live by my wits. I'm not above bending the law if I think it's not for my good. I live the kind of life other people would just love to live if they had the courage. Who's to say if the boy would be happier your way or mine? Why not let him decide? In other words, isn't letting him decide the, the loving thing to do? Isn't giving him what he wants the most loving thing to give him? Like, isn't the most important thing in his life how, how happy he is in a particular moment? And Andy replies, I'm afraid it don't work that way. You can't let a youngin decide for himself. He'll grab at the first flashy thing with shiny ribbons on it. Then when he finds out there's a hook in it, it's too late. Wrong ideas come packaged with so much glitter, it's hard to convince him that other things might be better in the long run. All a parent can say is, wait, trust me, and try to keep temptation away. In other words, sometimes love looks like constraint, looks like saying no to people. Okay. The man says, that means you're inviting me to leave. Andy says, that's right. Well, you're wearing a badge, so I'll leave. That wasn't so difficult. Your problem is solved. And Andy concludes it this way. He says, that's where you're wrong. That boy thinks everything you do is just about near perfect. You've left behind an awful lot of unscrambling to be done. Okay, three quick comments about this show. First, wow, the difference between themes and children's programming, between when this was filmed in 1961 and today when you're scrolling through Disney+. Plus. Like if this were filmed today, if they made a Disney Plus remake of this episode, the vagrant would be the hero, telling kids not to listen to the constraints that their parents are putting on them and instead go follow their heart to that adventure that they want. Okay, second, as a father, this resonates with me a lot. As much as you'll hear otherwise today, there are plenty of times when a kid actually needs to hear a parent say, because I said so. There are a lot of times, like... You get a lot of pushback against that idea from those who say, no, 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 you never say. I've heard that before. You, you never say because I said so. That's the worst thing you could say because kids always need to be told the reason why. And I, I understand the sentiment, the sentiment behind that, right? Like, I think it's good to give kids, I don't entirely disagree. It's good to, over time, right, give kids a reason why they believe what they believe. But listen to me, because I said so is a reason. Like, right authority, and listening to that right authority, even when you, you don't understand, or even when you don't agree, in that moment, your immediate impulses to disagree is an extremely important skill that a child needs to be able to develop that will follow them their entire lives. And it has vast spiritual implications, most importantly, as they open their Bibles the rest of their lives. Okay? They need to understand that it's one of the ways that as parents, we love our children. Like, letting, letting them do whatever they want would be what I would do as a father if I didn't care about them at all. Like, if I were to develop a game plan to, like, all right, I want to make it super clear to my kids. I want to communicate to them. I don't care about you. That's exactly what I would look like and sound like. I don't know. Do whatever you want to do. Right? So third, because of that, I think it's also something that res resonates 
personally and pastorally, as someone who's both a finite person who still obviously struggles to understand the decrees of an infinite God, and as a pastor who comes alongside of other people who have those struggles too. In other words, the episode provides this picture of a father demonstrating love for his children by speaking authoritatively and decisively on matters that they might not always, the children might not always understand or fully agree with, but to say to the child as Andy did, listen, wait, trust me. Like, I'm doing this because I love you. While also saying to the false teacher who's spreading lies to his children and won't repent of them, you need to leave. You need to leave. It's this picture of protection and love. And in Revelation 2, 18 through 29, something similar is in view here. Love is in view. What does it mean to love? What does it mean that God loves His children? But also, what does it mean for God's children to love one another and love others in this world? What does it mean in terms of what God says to His children? What does it mean in terms of God's expectation of how His children will speak to one another and proclaim His word to others? And as we read this, We see four parts of the address to the church in Thyatira that give us, when we read them, they will give us a much sharper understanding of the love of God. God's love toward us and how we now love one another. Okay, how we love others. Each of these letters are similar in structure, so you'll notice the outline for this week is similar to last week, right? Because... They're all following a similar pattern, but they're different in content. They're different in aim. And so this week, here's what we're going to see. Number one, we're going to see the salutation from Jesus to his church. It's similar to the prologue from last week, the introduction. They all begin with this introduction. So a salutation. Number two, the strength of this church in their particular Christian walk. He highlights their strength. Number three, the sin that still has a hold of some from within the life of this church. And then finally, the solution, the ultimate solution to that sin. So, salutation, strength, sin, and solution. Let's start with salutation. Verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. As with all of these churches, this portion of the letter begins with a remark a word from Jesus to the angel who has some kind of connection to the church and to that city at large. Kind of like this angel that's watching over. And it addresses, Jesus addresses it to this angel to help the church see the seriousness of the issue at hand. Like when they receive this letter and they read it and they see, okay, it's addressed not to the leaders of the church in Thyatira, though that's one opinion, but actually to the angel of the church in Thyatira. It's, it's, given on an eternal scale, that John has actually been, that's what apocalyptic literature is, he's been caught up into the heavenlies, being given a heavenly, eternal perspective. Now they know eternal things are at stake here. And here he addresses the church in Thyatira. It, it wasn't a major city, Thyatira. We, we actually don't know a lot about it. I think uh, we want to sometimes cleverly make connections that perhaps aren't there because we don't, we don't know a lot. But, but we do know for certain it had a reputation for metalworking, for textiles throughout Asia Minor in the first century. And it was also known for its trade guilds in which metalworkers would all collaborate and participate so that they could do business across 
Asia Minor, right? So there were these trade guilds, and in order to participate in these trade guilds, you had to participate in daily life, uh, the daily culture in uh, that particular city and from within Thyatira. And Jesus reveals himself to, to this church in Thyatira as the Son of God. Again, these aren't John's words, but, but the words, it says, the words of the Son of God. They come directly from him, one who has ultimate authority, his eyes like a flame of fire. What does that mean? Well, as we talked about a few weeks ago in chapter 1, it's a reflection of the intensity of his holiness. His all-knowing gaze that pierces everything that's in view. Like anyone that stands before Jesus' eyes of flaming fire are completely vulnerable as he gazes upon them. There's nothing that they can hide from him. There's no secret that they can keep. Playing games before Christ is useless. He sees everything. And as he looks, he pierces the very core of a person, the very core of a city the very core of a church. And as he looks, we come to see that he won't tolerate evil. His eyes that pierce see evil, and he won't compromise. The reason we know that his gaze pierces everything, but he won't tolerate evil, is found in the next description. His feet are like burnished bronze. So not only will the risen Christ not allow for the compromise that he sees, the evil that he sees, but under his bronze feet he will crush all that is evil. Right, so this is the salutation. There's one central idea that this, that this verse is communicating. It's that the exalted Christ is uncompromising. The exalted Christ is uncompromising. He will not tolerate evil. He sees it. He sees all sin. Nothing can hide from his gaze. And he doesn't tolerate it. Second, as he gazes upon Thyatira the first thing that he speaks about that he sees is their strength. Verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed your first. Oh, that the exalted Christ might speak that way looking upon our church. Right? That if, if the exalted Christ were standing before us, his eyes flamed the fire, piercing gospel life church, piercing our hearts, seeing everything. Oh, that he might say of us, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed your first. That as you've grown as a church, you've grown in love. Here Jesus looks and he sees this church that's quite active in their city and good works, caring for people in the city, in love. He says, I know your works. And then he lists four of them, love, faith, service, patient endurance. And in a sense, I would say that love is, is the controlling uh, trait here, the controlling work. It's the emphatic work that's actually contrasted, as we'll see, with a prior word. It's meant to kind of draw the most attention, and it seems to motivate the others. According to John, in both his gospel account, as he quotes the words of Christ, and in his letters, we come to find that love is a primary characteristic or trait of anyone who claims to be a Christian. That if you claim to know Christ and you do not love, if you claim to know Christ but you do not love your brothers, you're a liar. Right? It, it falsifies your claim to know Christ. It's a primary characteristic or trait of anyone who claims to be a Christian. And in this case, the word probably means something similar to what we saw earlier in chapter 2, in verse 4, when Jesus tells Ephesus that they lost their love that they had in the first. 
In fact, what we come to see is there's only two, uh, two occurrences of this word agape in that form as a noun in the entire book of Revelation. And they happen, one in chapter 2, verse 4, just what we read it a few weeks ago when Justin was preaching, and one here in verse 19. One was used when he was rebuking Ephesus for losing their love, and one is used now when he commends Thyatira for growing in their love, then the two are meant to be contrasted. What was happening at Ephesus, as we'll continue to see, seems to be nearly the exact opposite of what we find happening in Thyatira. In Ephesus, their love was eroding as, t- as their ministry went on. They were losing the love that they had in the first, while in Thyatira, they're growing in it as time goes on. It's increasing. It's increasing. It resulted in a deeper faith in Christ, a more committed service or active life and care in the community around them. Deeply charitable service. And they've endured in that love to the point where Jesus can say that their most recent works as a church, their most recent works in, in Thyatira, are even greater than their, their first. Their love has increased. Their good works have increased. Their self-sacrificial charity has increased. And they, as a church, are developing a reputation for their love. It's really remarkable. It's high praise. It's not something we should skip over quickly. Ephesus, if you remember, seemed to have devalued the idea of love, devalued the love that they had for one another and for the surrounding community as the life of their church continued. They were strong in faithfulness and in doctrine, but perhaps they'd come to believe that as long as they were believing the right things, as Justin shared with us, It didn't matter whether or not those things gave way to actual love for God and one another. In the case of Thyatira, however, their love is increasing. Both the quality, and I think this is really what Jesus is saying, both the quality and the quantity of their love from within the community of Thyatira was growing. Can you imagine if that's that continues to happen here? Imagine gospel life becoming known in this way, that the quality of our love the way that we love grows, becoming ever more and more loving. And the quantity of our love, the amount of our works that we do in the community grows so that Crystal, the city around us, looks, looks at us and says, look at that church that just loves people so well, right? This should continue to help us as a church to think about how to become known for that in the surrounding community. And I'm so thankful this morning for Ellie and Emma and others around them who want to help begin these ministries of mercy surrounding the community. So vital for us as we talk about like being known for acts of love in the life of our church. I'm so thankful for Lydia and the team coming around her to serve in hospitality, showing love to one another here, love to visitors coming in to join us. I'm so thankful for Julie and Melanie as they serve and love families with children who come into the life of our church and start to think about like what does it look like to have a youth ministry that loves uh, students here well at Gospel Life Church as we grow. I'm so thankful for Sawyer and Tina and for Christian as they serve to start building a community here where we can actively build deeper relationships and love one another well. I'm so thankful for CJ and Maria as they show love and mercy to me every week, taking care of finance and logistics. And all of us, believe me, they do. They serve us here so well. And I want to encourage you, reach out to these deacons and serve in the life of Gospel Life Church, that we might grow in our love. Like, connect with them. There's so many deacons here who have just a desire to do 
these acts of service and love. And they desire for Gospel Life Church to really uh, come up around those ministries. And so reach out to them. Jump into ministry. Serve with us. And as we grow in our depth of the wisdom of the knowledge of God, through the preached word, through our um, Sunday evening gatherings as we gather together and hear and think about doctrine, as we grow in our knowledge of God, we'll grow more and more. We'll come to know more and more of the love of God. And that love should be active, right? If we're really believing the love of God, if we really believe that he's done what he said, if we really believe in this gospel, then it should move us out on mission. It should move us out and motivate us out in, in love. As we care for one another, care for the least of these, care for those who the Lord places in our path during the week, and really care together and partner together in love. So that's their strength. They're active in love and good works. And that brings us now to their sin. There's a problem. You might say, well, wait, how's that possible that there's a problem? Wait, wait, hang on. How could there be a problem when they're doing so much good? I mean, look, they're loving so well. They're growing in their love. People know them for their love. Isn't that the whole thing? Isn't that what Christianity is all about, is just to be a loving community? Just love. All you need is love. Well, let's, let's read verses 20 to 23, and I'll explain. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants into practice sexual to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols I gave her time to repent but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality behold I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. There's a compromise happening in Thyatira. There's, there's a tolerance of that which should not be tolerated, a tolerance of wickedness and evil. There's an embrace of the views of the world specifically related to sexual ethics. There's an affirming of the views and ethics and culture of the day. And it's happening because there's a woman from within their midst who claims to speak for God. And yet she says the opposite of what God says. She says, I I have a special revelation from the Lord. And the revelation, conveniently enough, is you can totally do what the rest of the culture does. And view things the way that the culture does from within sexual ethics. That's totally fine. It's totally permissible. You can totally do that. In other words, she contradicts God, and then she does it as one who claims to know better than him. She's like, yeah, I got this. The name that she's given in the text is Jezebel, but that's almost certainly a symbolic name, right? Um, Jezebel in the Old Testament is a reference to King Ahab's wife, who looked to do much the same thing to Israel, drawing them away from God. And the point here is that this woman is likely either something of a spokesperson for the Nicolaitans. We've um, talked about them before. I'll, I'll briefly mention them again here. She's either a spokesperson of some kind, or she's taken them into her home, given them safe harbor as maybe a wealthy woman who's able to, to invite them into her home, invite their worldview in, and then has taken up their cause. The last couple of weeks, we've looked at the Nicolaitans believing themselves to be above the law of God. They didn't see any harm in, in compromising. 
with surrounding culture. They likely preached a version of something that's called antinomism or anti-law, saying that a Christian is free to do whatever they want, participate in the worship of pagan gods, participate in temple feasts where there would have been temple prostitutes, drunkenness, all manner of evil. And this woman not only has found her way into the church in Thyatira, but she's seducing the servants of God there into sexual sin. She's bringing people with her into sexual sin, perhaps even inviting people, people into her own bed to get the church to falter in this way and to believe, oh, it's, you know what, this is actually perfectly fine. When this happens, typically, it's not actually because somebody believes they found some truer doctrine or right, right doctrine. When this happens, typically it's because someone is seeking to justify themselves. That they, they don't like, as Justin told us a couple weeks ago, being told that something is sinful. That God says that something is sinful, right? So, you know, the world says, we want you to tell us that it's okay. And we say, well, you're free to do it. But we believe it's sinful. Yeah, but we want you to tell us it's, it's fine. That's what you're seeing happening here. And in this case, uh, people aren't showing any love to God's people by saying, you need to either repent or leave. There's no one doing that. Instead, they're tolerating that evil. That's the sin that Jesus addresses here. They're tolerating this evil. Part of the reason that they're tolerating it, tolerating it is probably because many of them are metal workers who feel pressure by these trade guilds to actively embrace the views of the day. And this woman has just given them a way to do that. If they don't, they might find themselves, in fact, they would find themselves unable to practice their occupation because essentially they'd be shut out from the marketplace. It's really not unlike what you find today in North America in which associations will interpret their codes of ethics in ways that makes it nearly impossible, even right now, for Christians to be anything but affirming of sexual ethics of the day if they're going to have that job. Otherwise, they lose their license to practice. If you think I'm exaggerating, I just want to gently push back and say, it's possible that you're in something of a Christian bubble. There are friends that I have from even this past year who have either lost their job for precisely what I'm talking about this morning, and if I were to tell you that story, maybe you'd be surprised at how easy it was for them to lose it, or who are saying, I went to school for this and I'm not sure that I can even sign on the dotted line. This is a real kind of pressure, and that pressure is obviously amplified here in Thyatira. Could be at least one of the reasons why the church is tolerating this false teacher. This woman's saying that they should all just, it's okay, it's okay, you can still be a part of the trade guilds. Because it's perfectly fine, and it's a very convenient view for these first century Christians to believe. Right? She provides a lot of convenience to them. And yet, lest we think the judgment that Jesus ushers here, utters here to them is too harsh, we should know that not only is the sin that Jesus speaks of extremely destructive, but there's been much grace extended here by Jesus to this woman time and opportunity for her to repent, according to verse 21. It reminds us of these places in Scripture in which God tells us He's patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance, right? Like, so in, in Peter's second letter, he's writing, yes, judgment will come, right? So if you're a believer, who's, if, you, if you're someone who's living in unrepentant sin, you're not trusting in the mercies of God, you're it's un unrepentant sin, and you've essentially decided, I'm not talking about somebody here who 
is dealing with a besetting sin that they're trying to overcome, that they're trying to put to death, that, that they're still wrestling with. I'm talking about someone who's saying, um, yeah, I know that sin, and I just don't care. Here what we find is there's this embrace of that in which uh, they continue in this, and Jesus tells them, Peter, Peter writes, judgment will come. But God's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. It shows us the heart of God. He's been patient with her here, but she has not repented. Therefore, she is now judged. Since she's been eager to welcome others into her bed, Jesus says she can just stay there now in sickness until they repent, those who have followed her in this teaching can experience judgment alongside of her. And the judgment is so severe because Jesus deems the specific sin of drawing others away from the living God intentionally to be so severe. He says that he will even strike her children dead. There's some debate as to whether or not, um, along with the idea of Jezebel and her children, there's some symbolism for those who have uh, not only embraced the false teaching, but who are now proclaiming it to others as well. But this is severe that all of the churches might know, that Thyatira might know, and that the surrounding churches that this is addressed to might know that she is judged and that Jesus with his eyes of fire searches the mind, searches the heart, and he will judge them for what they have done. So, seeing this contrast, listen to me now, because this is really the, this is the core of the passage. To understand what Jesus is saying here, you have to see this. Let's look again at this contrast, seeing the contrast between Ephesus from a few weeks ago, as Justin preached it, and Thyatira. Ephesus was saying, we have our biblical doctrine and ethics straight. We don't affirm things uh, that are clearly sinful in the Bible as not sinful. We hold the correct doctrine. So what does it matter if we're loving one another? Right? We got, we got all of our theological T's crossed and I's dotted, so why does love matter? And Jesus essentially says, because if you were truly faithful to biblical ethics, you would love me and love one another. It's the core of biblical ethics. It's the core of biblical doctrine. And so they were under judgment, under the threat of judgment for that. Thyatira, on the other hand, is saying, we love so well. We love this community that we're in so much. We do all these good works here. We're getting something of a reputation for love as it grows and grows. So what does it matter who sleeps with who? Why should it matter what people believe about sex? Isn't, the, isn't that just a distraction? Isn't the core issue behind biblical ethics love? And Jesus says, yes, but leading people away from truth and further into sin is manifestly unloving. Jesus says, you have confused compromise that contravenes biblical morality with love. How is it loving to tell someone that doing something destructive is perfectly fine? So listen, it's true that believing that you have right doctrine and ethics without love is incoherent. It's actually not right doctrine and ethics at all because the first and second commandment is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? It's incoherent. It's the center of biblical doctrine. Doctrine is love. But it's also true that believing you have love while compromising the clear teachings of Jesus in surrounding culture is just as incoherent and actually not loving at all for two reasons. Number one, if you're 
telling God essentially that what he's clearly saying, you can do a better job communicating. God, let me just, let me function as your PR rep because you're not doing a very good, you're driving a lot of people away with these words. So let me just, you be quiet about that. And I'm, I'll, I'll smooth things over. That's manifestly unloving of God. You're breaking the first commandment. You're not loving God when you refuse to treat what he says is for your good as true. When he speaks, do we believe him and trust him, right? It's manifestly unloving of God. But second, it's unloving of our neighbor. It breaks the second commandment as well. While you're attempting to do good to your neighbor, you're, you're simultaneously telling people that rebellion against God and what he's done is perfectly fine. It's not loving your neighbor to tell them that something God has said will destroy them. It will actually have horrible social and emotional and spiritual consequences right now. It will actually eat them alive in the present while also leading them toward the destruction of judgment is perfectly fine. That kind of compromise is the very definition of unloving. Here's the issue. Here's the real issue. The first question isn't whether Christians are being unloving or intolerant when they believe when they believe hold to historically orthodox biblical sexual ethics. The, the first question is not whether or not they're being unloving by holding to that. The real issue is the first issue is if God has declared it so, if He has spoken, if God, the God of the universe, the infinite, perfect, holy God has spoken and actually said, this is what is good and beautiful and will result in human flourishing, and this is what's sinful and broken and will end in your destruction, how could you, as a finite human who doesn't understand, who's fallen into sin, declaring the opposite to people, possibly be loving? Some might say, they might object and say, well, sure, if God has said that, if he said that, then saying the opposite, if an eternal, perfect, infinite, holy God said that, saying the opposite would be unloving. But did God really say? Did God really say it? That's like the most straightforward words of Scripture related to sexual ethics. I mean, even people who've been Christians all their lives, I watch it happen. Take the most straightforward issues in, in sexual ethics, straightforward verses, where it says that sexual immorality is a sin before God, and then it lists various sins very specifically as this qualifies as sexual immorality, this is sexual immorality, this is sexual immorality, and it's very straightforward. If you were to write a letter to someone stating the exact same thing, saying, I believe that sexual immorality is a sin, and here are all the things that qualify, it wouldn't be, you know, people wouldn't scratch their heads and say, I wonder what they're trying to say, right? But we get to the Bible, and we say for a half a minute, did God really say... You'll hear people cast doubts on whether God even said those things, whether it actually means whether two, uh, what 2,000 years of church history has come to believe, as though suddenly we learned how to read our Bibles you know, right now. As though straightforward passages had a hidden Bible code inside of them all along that changed the meaning to how we discovered it. And so typically what happens is that while the conversation pivots, I think, first to, well, well hang on, did God really say? It usually moves very quickly on to, the next part, which is, oh, but there's not going to really be a problem. There's no, there's no real consequences, right? Um, you will surely not die. There won't be any judgment. The Bible probably says this. In other words, people eventually will, will say that. The Bible actually says this, but 
The God of the Bible is a cosmic killjoy. Don't listen to him. Like Jesus was a product of his time. Paul's a product of his time. Get rid of the Bible. Do what you want. And it's okay. It's okay. God, if he's loving, he'll, he'll, he'll be on your side. If you remember, the first one to make that argument was the serpent in the garden. First asking Eve, did God really say? And then when it was clearly established pretty quickly that he did, moving on to, you will surely not die. You will surely not die. But the argument that it's somehow unloving, it's somehow loving to obfuscate the biblical text and allow people to do whatever they want is the argument that the serpent is the one acting in a loving way in Genesis 3. It's the argument that he's the hero of the story. It's, it's the argument that the serpent's the hero, God is the oppressor. That's how backwards this idea is. Verse 24 here says that many are referring to this woman's teaching as the deep things of Satan, right? She claims to speak for God, but she's actually elevating the serpent. Did God really say? You will surely not die. And for many, the serpent has become the hero, helping people throw off the oppressive shackles of biblical orthodoxy that the Creator God thrust upon them in those first three chapters. Meanwhile, the consequences of what happened when we, when we encourage people to do that show that those actions aren't just unloving, but the opposite of loving. It was hateful. It was evil. Adam and Eve, you know, you say, Adam and Eve, they, they just deconstruct. They just deconstruct a harmful ideology. They throw off the shackles of orthodoxy. They're free to do as they want. And yeah, then they find themselves stripped of their innocence before the Father, judged as those who are guilty of rebellion, cast out of God's very presence entrenched with a view of rebellion that uh, is going to, in the end, eat them alive in the present and lead to judgment in the future if God doesn't do anything about it. How is that loving? This is how love wins? By telling people there's no judgment when there is? When God has said there is? Love wins by pointing people down a road that certainly leads to destruction? Pretty clearly, not, and yet this is something that the Western church is facing right now. The Western church is facing a problem in which, uh, remember, remember the issue here isn't necessarily that the leaders of the church are doing what this woman Jezebel is doing, right? It's not that they're, they're the ones who are actively proclaiming it, it's that they're tolerating it. And in the West, what we're finding is a, a very high level from within even evangelical churches of tolerance of Jezebel, tolerance of teachings of sexual immorality. And the way that you can tell that it's being tolerated is what people talk about and don't talk about. Okay, so two really important articles came out this last week, written by uh, some influential thinkers from within Christianity. One, the editor of Christianity Today, Mark Galley, and the other, um, Carl Truman. Truman wrote an article in first things. Galley wrote an article in Christianity Today, and both of them were writing about a phenomenon that they address as evangelical elitism. And from their perspective, the problem of evangelical elitism is a certain subset of evangelicals who care so deeply about being seen a certain way in the world around them, that it, that it affects that they rejoice, right, when they're giving pats on the back from surrounding culture, when, when something they've written lands in the Atlantic or the New York Times, you know, uh, when they get accolades, they kind of steer clear of things that might bring condemnation from culture. So Galley and Truman really press in on this, 
And they say, this is, this is evangelical elitism. It's not the idea that you have men from within evangelicalism who are proclaiming what Jezebel is proclaiming. They're not dumb enough to do that. But they're tolerating evil by not speaking about the things that the world around them hates. By avoiding those things. So there, there might be a controversial issue. And the evangelical elite will talk about controversial issues, but they will pivot to the controversial issues that the culture agrees with the, on, <laughs> them on. That, where they might get a pat on the back, where they might receive accolade. They won't touch sexual ethics, though. Right? This is why, from within evangelical elitism, just by way of observation, I think you find very little expositional preaching, expository preaching through the Word. Because if you preach through the Word, you're going to get to Thyatira when you're preaching through Revelation. You're going to start in Romans, and you're not even going to get get through the first chapter before you say something that the world is going to condemn you for. Right? This is a very real problem. So how does love win if love doesn't win by pointing people down the broad road or tolerating the broad road? Well, here we find the solution, finally, the solution. So the sin in Thyatira, compromise on sexual ethics and idolatry, right? Those two things were very bound up. But here we see the solution, holding fast by grace until the end. That's the solution that Jesus gives us. Holding fast by grace to the end. Starting in verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're reminded again, so if there's a, there's a central teaching to this section of Revelation 2, 18 through 29, it's this. If there's one concept that, that Jesus wants to impress on us, it's this. True love, true love perseveres in both devotion and doctrine. It's similar to last week, but with a different direction. True love perseveres in both devotion and doctrine. One without the other simply will not work. Devotion without doctrine is not devotion. Doctrine without devotion is not, do- is not right doctrine. What we come to find is it won't work because it's not actually loving. That's what this passage of Scripture shows us. The good news is that we have this kind of love in Jesus, though. Right? While being judged according to your works brings judgment, Jesus took all of your evil upon himself at the cross so that now you could be judged according to his work and not your own. Which, as we saw last week, is an innocent verdict. And as a result, you can now, by his work and not yours, say, no, I do not hold to this teaching. I do not compromise. I do not desire what the world desires. I've been given the morning star. What's the morning star? It's a reference to Jesus himself. It's a reference to Christ. And because Christ satisfies, because I've been given Christ, why would I want the world? 
Because I've been given Christ, because He satisfies where no sexual sin could possibly satisfy, I can renounce that sin and live in line with my new desires. Because I'm accepted by Christ, and He accepts me more than any accolades that I could receive from surrounding culture possibly accept me, then I can now stand in His truth, knowing that it's His truth and not mine, and live in line with my new desires. And Jesus here tells them, the believers being in union with Christ, they now have all that belongs to him. They now possess all that belongs to Christ. They're given authority with him. Jesus references Psalm 2 in saying there will be vindication for believers. There will be vindication that everything kind of gets turned back the way that it should be. That when God initially created man in the garden, we came to see God's people in his place under his rule having authority then under him of the, the world order. But then Satan comes in and twists that whole thing around, do you remember? Where it was actually the creature who was given authority. And they tried to dethrone God and put themselves on the throne. And so it might seem to them in Thyatira like, I can't do business uh, without losing my job if I hold to, to, these, to what the, the scriptures tell me to be faithful to. There's an authority over me that's oppressive. And Jesus says, in the end, there will be vindication. In the end, the mandate of Genesis 1 to rule as God's people in his place under his rule will ultimately be given to those who persevere. And we're reminded of both the act on the cross that made following him possible and our union with him that ultimately that makes following him possible and that ultimately vindicates us. We, we, we're reminded of both of them. We celebrate both of them. We experience the grace of both of them as we come to the table each week. And so, once again, we have this opportunity to declare to one another this good news. The good news that though we failed to love in right ways, though we failed to hold, uh, to persevere in both devotion and doctrine, Jesus did that perfectly, that by his strength we might have both. By his love, we might love others in the same way. And so we, we uh, come together at the table and we proclaim that love to one another.